0: Thanks for joining us. The following is a presentation of Ignite Global Ministries and features the teaching of Pastor Ben Dixon. Pastor Ben has a vision of strengthening the church to impact the world. He serves as lead pastor at Northwest Foursquare Church in Federal Way, Washington. If you have a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 18. And you could also hold your finger in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 if we get there today, which I hope to do. Amen. So let's go ahead and pray. Father, we do thank you today for your word, and we thank you for this conversation. And ultimately, Lord, I, I do pray that we would be a people that look more and more like Jesus Christ. We want to look like your son, and he is the ultimate example for us. And we pray, God, as we read your word, and these are the words of Jesus, that you would conform our hearts to his image knowing that that is what you desire for each one of us. So I pray for everyone that's tuning in, that you would bless them, strengthen them, fill them with your Holy Spirit. Give us the grace to walk out a life that looks like you and that touches the people of this world. And as we deal with the offenses, I pray that it would be an example that life and love and hope and freedom is actually found in Jesus. We love you, Lord, and we look forward to the fruit that will come as a result of this conversation. In Jesus' mighty name, and everybody said, amen. Hey, well, God bless you today. Once again, this is a series that we're in called Dealing with Offense, and let me just give you a quick review. We had three lessons on this already, and we talked first about cultivating a pure heart, knowing that before we ever talk to someone, before we're ever sinned against or we sin against someone else... ...whereby we have an offense, we know that it first starts in the heart because our heart, if it's not pure, if we're not dealing with our heart before God, if we're not already submitted to His Word, if we're not already being led by the Holy Spirit, we're going to have issues regardless of what that might be. And so we talked about cultivating a pure heart so that we could be people that before something ever happens that we're predisposed towards grace, we're predisposed towards mercy, we're predisposed towards biblical living, which is really what it's all about. So no matter what the prescription is as a result of the offense, we know that it's found in scripture and our hearts must be yielded to God and his word before anything ever happens. And so we talked about that, that was our first lesson. Our second lesson was called the sources of offense. And I, I talked about nine different things that will happen to us or things that usually lead us into offense, whether they're the sins that come against us or they're actual things that we have in our own hearts, sin or past wounds or other things that cause us to be offended when somebody does something. It could be a real sin that they commit against us, or it could be a thing that they do that reminds us of somebody else's sin. And we need to know that sin against us is not meant to produce sin in us, nor is somebody maybe doing something that maybe isn't sin against us, but it looks like another person. We've got to be aware of our own hearts. We've got to be aware of who we are and how we perceive things. And the more that we are, the less offended that we will be. And then of course, lesson number three, um, that was where we talked about initial steps of freedom. And these were general things that we can do in order to see freedom in our lives and not live in an offended state or a place of offense. Because when we live an offended life, we find that we will be distracted and or distorted from the life of Christ that we're called to live out, right? That's the goal. The goal according to Romans chapter 8, Ephesians 5, many other passages in Scripture. In fact, Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26 says that we were made in God's image according to his likeness. And this is what Jesus restores in us is likeness, nature, character, and virtue. We're called to be like Jesus. He was the ultimate example for the way we're to live life. We want to follow his example and we want to do it well. And so if that's really the case and we know that God's producing that in us, then we've got to understand how it is that we not only get free in Christ, but we stay free in Christ because that is our concern. Now, here's what I'm not teaching you. I'm not saying that we're supposed to be doormats. I'm not saying that sin against us doesn't matter. I'm not saying that there isn't a process to deal with sin when it's committed. But I am saying there are a lot of things that people call sin that is not sin. There's a lot of things that people perceive that is being done to them, said about them, or even just culturally that is somehow um, causes them to be wounded and afflicted. And the reality is, is that when we're free in Christ, we are also free of a lot of other things that could project wounding in our own lives. And so we're not victims, we're victorious. And you need to know that about your own life. You are not a victim, I am not a victim. I am free in Christ. Maybe on the outward, people consider me bound or there might be limitations and restrictions in my life, but on the inside, because I have the precious Holy Spirit, I've got the Word of God, I can live a life that is free in christ and that's what this is all about that we can be free on the inside i don't know what's going to happen to you and i don't know what's going to happen to me but i can tell you this if we're going to live as missionaries in this world if we're going to live as followers of christ the bible says in first peter chapter three that we will suffer and whatever that suffering might be you may have a different life than me you may li- you may be a totally different person than me your background your ethnicity your language your culture we're all different but the reality is is that if we're going to live a godly life in Christ Jesus we are going to suffer persecution and we need to embrace that ahead of time the bible's very clear we don't want to suffer for our own stupidity and there will be times where we will suffer Uh, in this world because this world is cruel. Sin will produce sin. Sin will give birth to sin and we will all be affected by that. Seven billion people on the planet making free will choices is going to affect all of us in one way or another. There are all kinds of sin. And so what is the purpose of us forgiving sin? We are reaching people's hearts for Christ. That's our mission. Our mission is not to, to just... Uh, push back sin as though the gospel is not the fix-all. Jesus called us to be missionaries. He gave us a message. That message is the only thing that sets people's hearts free. If you don't believe that yet, let me convince you. Friend, if I didn't believe that the gospel was the power of God unto salvation and actually the healing agent by which i could be free enough to love you then you and i need to be convinced of that that is what the bible teaches the bible teaches that there is only one message and there is only one ministry there is only one person that can bring the freedom that each person on the planet wants and that is jesus christ who was who was crucified who's risen from the dead who gives life to us by His Spirit and teaches us according to His Word. I'm already preaching, and I wasn't meaning to. Okay, maybe I was. But here's what we're doing today. Today, we're talking about how to handle offense in the church, right? So this is where someone sins against us, actually, not just a perception. And what do we do as a result of that if they're a brother or sister in Christ? This lesson is all about how do we handle this in the church. And so we're going to be reading uh, Matthew chapter 18. And I'm just going to read the whole chapter because why not? Here we are. You're here. I'm here. Let's go for it. This is what it says in verse 1, Matthew chapter 18. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and they said to him, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself and he set before them and, and said, truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself As this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, and whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Verse 7, "'Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks, for it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to the man through whom the stumbling blocks will come.'" If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into an eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you, for it is better for you to enter life with one eye than you to have two eyes and be cast into the fiery hell. Verse 10 See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. Verse 12 What do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep, and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety nine on the mountainside and go search for the one that is straying away? If it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety nine which have not gone astray. So it is not the will of your father who is in heaven that one of these would perish, right? God's heart is full of rescue for everyone. He wants every person to come to know him. If your brother sins, this is where we're going to be highlighting, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. If he does not listen to you, take two or more uh, with you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed." If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two agree on earth about anything they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst." And then really I won't go over this, but verse 21 through 35 is where Peter listens to what Jesus says about really how to handle sin among brothers and he says, how many times should I forgive my brother if he sins against me in a day? That's Peter's response to Jesus. How then shall I deal with this because people sin against me and if they do it more than once, twice or three times, what am I supposed to do? And Peter says three times and Jesus says 70 times seven and then he gives a parable to explain what this looks like and really the point of the parable is that it's not about the sin against you but it's about the character in you and so kingdom kids and kingdom character is all about being a people that forgive others and that's what jesus obviously wanted peter to know and peter hadn't really accepted at that point and so jesus's teaching is fundamentally new for a guy like peter and the disciples They had been taught other things by rabbis. Here's what I want to do. I want to jump into this passage, and I just want to outline verse by verse. So let's just look at verses 1 through 5, because these verses lead up to verse 15. Verse 15 is where Jesus gives a way in which that we deal with sin among the church, those that are brothers and sisters in Christ. But the passages before verse 15 help us to understand the foundation for which that is even possible. And you'll see that to be the case. I've gone over this a few times before. But in this context of dealing with offense, we've got to look at this because the Scripture gives us wisdom. In fact, there are a lot of Proverbs that talk to us about how to deal with sin. And I think Jesus' words really bring a lot of clarity. And so here's the deal. This whole chapter, Matthew 18, starts out with this one question. And the question comes from the disciples because they have this sense that Jesus is the Messiah. He's made it very clear to them about this, but their eschatology, their understanding of the Messiah, how that's all supposed to unfold is fundamentally different from what Jesus not only has been teaching them, but what he's also showing them in the way that he is. They're looking for him to kind of rise up in power. They understand authority or structures of authority, and he's not walking out Um, what they actually perceive is is supposed to happen with the Messiah. And so they ask him questions like this based on a lot of their theology. They say, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And we read this, we can imagine that uh, they're asking this because they're thinking about their life. So Jesus is the Messiah and he chose them to follow him. Then they're thinking, what does that mean for us and who's the greatest? So they start to really think well of themselves throughout this whole process. And just to kind of give them a little bit of slack, instead of like putting them putting them down, we want to make sure that we understand their theology would dictate certain things. And so now that they are mostly assured that Jesus is the Messiah, although he's not fitting the bill on some of their theology, they're asking these kind of questions based on their assumptions. And so Jesus responds to them by asking a child to come and he has this child presented to them. And here's this child and the child says to them basically or he says to them about the child unless you become converted like a child you will not enter the kingdom of heaven that's the first thing he says and he basically says that that a person that is like a child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So he uses a child as a metaphor for greatness. What is a child? A child is dependent a child will trust a child is humble. Yeah, a child is certainly um, inquisitive. A child's going to ask a lot of questions. All of that we know children ask uh, questions, but even implicit in asking the question, they're trusting the one that they're asking, right? So the reality is, is the younger that my kids were, the more questions they would ask, but that's not so bad because they want to know and they want to learn, and they're trusting the one that they're asking the question of. Jesus is using the child as a metaphor, and he's saying those that are converted and become like this little child, not only will they enter the kingdom, but they will be great in the kingdom. So greatness is about humility. That's the key in this passage. Verses one through five, it is all about humility. It's about us being children of the kingdom, children of the king. And this is what we must look like. And this is what we must stay like. Keep that metaphor in your mind. Children, trusting, dependent. All of us are children. We must be humble. Remember, Jesus starts out in Matthew 5, the Beatitudes. The first Beatitude is blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Remember, the disciples are asking about who is great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus has already talked about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. Those are synonymous terms that are interchangeable. And he's talking to them about the kingdom. And he's saying to them, those who are in the rule and under the rule and the reign of of God, the kingdom of God, he's saying that blessed are the poor in spirit, those who are humble, those that know their need. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So this concept of humility is something that Jesus has been teaching, it's something that Jesus has been modeling. And clearly the disciples, by way of contrast, have not seen that entirely from their religious leaders. They've seen pride, they've seen status, they've seen title, they've seen this pecking order. And so they're sort of trying to reconcile. Jesus's way, the Jesus way versus the religious way that they're used to and they're thinking in those terms. And so Jesus is flipping the script. He's helping them understand things that are really important. And also I wanna mention that when he talks about children, he's talking about the kingdom, he's talking about children, he's mentioning all of us. Everyone that converts like a child and becomes like a child, humbles himself, is able to come into the kingdom by humbling himself. We have to recognize we are doing that by saying Jesus is Lord. His words and his ways are most important for all of us. So for those of us that claim Jesus Christ as Lord, we've got to recognize that that means that his standard is the same standard for all of us. That none of us have a right to anything other than what scripture teaches because we have one Lord, one faith, one baptism. We are all children of the king, and the king is the one who decides what is true. The king is the one who decides how we are to live life. And that humility that's required to enter the kingdom is the same humility that is required for us to have the character of the kingdom. And that's what we read about at the end of the chapter, which is forgiveness. You cannot forgive and you cannot maintain a heart that forgives unless you're a person that continues to maintain the same humility that was necessary to enter the kingdom to continue the character of the kingdom. And so Jesus goes on from verses one through five. We see in verses six through nine, he makes a very serious statement. And he says, if anyone causes one of these little ones to stumble, uh, it is better for them to have a millstone tied around their neck and thrown into the sea. Now, a millstone was about 100 pounds, uh, about 100 pounds, and it was also a form of Roman execution. And they would have a criminal of some kind at, at times they... If they had to do it this way, they would tie a millstone around somebody's neck uh, for a criminal and they would throw them into the, a body of water of some kind. And so Jesus clearly is giving this pretty graphic picture and he's saying anybody that's going to cause others to stumble, somebody that's going to bring offense, stumbling blocks to others, it's better for them. This, this judgment in this life would be better than the judgment that's coming into the next life. God cares for, protects his kids. God vindicates. God is the one who brings about vengeance. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And so here in verse six, he basically is talking about how serious that it is, right? And let me go ahead and remind you of this verse. I didn't bring it up. Verse five, he says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. This is an important verse as we deal with offenses. Why? Because we need to see each other the way that Jesus sees us. We need to treat each other the way that Jesus treats us. If we can't see people the way that Jesus sees them, we're going to have conflict that will remain. That conflict will not be removed. Jesus' heart towards sinners, towards people that sinned against him, he's completely and totally innocent and perfect. And he says, I'm your example. And he treats sinners with love and forgiveness in reconciliation. Those that ask for forgiveness, those that desire that reconciliation will receive forgiveness. And so we've got to remember that Jesus wants us to deal with one another in keeping with how he is. So he deals with how serious sin is. We want to be careful that we're not causing other people to sin because God himself will deal with people in a very serious way. So he goes on in verse seven, woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. It is inevitable, but woe to the person who cause those stumbling blocks and sin. And so really there's a seriousness to any of us causing other people to sin. We don't wanna do that. We'll move on from there. Then he goes on to personal sin. He says, if your hand or your foot or your eye cause you to sin, gouge it out, cut it off. Deal with your sin. This is how serious sin actually is. And he's talking about sin against other people, not just personal sin. But the sin that causes other people to stumble, we need to realize that it is something we've got to take very seriously. And so he says, Take it this seriously. If you cause somebody to stumble, cut that thing off. Do whatever you got to do to rid yourself of that because the perpetuation of that sin, the cycle of that sin, will affect hundreds and hundreds of people or how many or however many people it will affect. But if we don't deal with our sin, that sin gives birth to sin and we need to cut it off. And so that's what he's, Jesus is actually talking about. We need to take it seriously. And then he goes on in verse 10 to 14. He says, see to it that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my father. He's basically just saying that each person is precious and you need to have the same view towards people that my father has towards them. And then he goes on to give the parable. God is willing to leave the 99 to go after the one. The father has a heart full of rescue. If the father has a heart full of rescue and he's, he's seeking to apprehend and bring back the wandering sheep, then we also need to realize that our sinning against each other will actually cause a stumbling. It'll cause a wandering. If God's seeking those that are wandering, we don't wanna be the one that causes them to wander. And so we have to be in alignment with God's heart. And sin, offense, stumbling blocks, these things get in the way of what God wants. They get in the way of what God's will is. And as children of the kingdom, we we have to take that seriously. So when a person sins against us, it's not just about how does that feel or how horrible was that? It's, Lord, what do you want me to do? Why? Because he's Lord. His truth is true over our lives, even in the context of somebody sinning against us. Now, I'm not teaching you to be a doormat, and neither is Jesus, because he gives us a process for when we are sinned against, because this is God's will, redemption and reconciliation. God is building a family where he is the father, Jesus is the oldest brother. We are sons and daughters. Jesus is our example, the firstborn among many brethren. In this family, this family has values. This has a family. this This family has a way of doing things, and we need to follow the family values, not the way it feels, not the way we want to. We want to get revenge. We want to exact the same thing against someone that they have done to us. This is not the way of the kingdom. So verse 15 is where we enter into. We've hit, all of these things are really important. We're children of the king. There's a character in the kingdom. We all are subject to the same Lord, the same word, the same will of God. God's heart is for rescue, restoration, redemption. We have to understand that we need to align our heart with his. Now, how do we deal with offense against a brother or somebody that has sinned against us? So he says this, verse 15. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he goes on to say, uh, speak about agreement. And for where two or three are gathered in agreement, he says, there I am in your midst, which is a scripture that is profoundly misused. As you can see, context dictates interpretation, right? We cannot come up with some interpretation. Sometimes we talk about this verse, like whatever's, you know, bound on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever's loosed on earth shall be loosed in heaven. We use that as sort of this uh, uh, prayer of agreement, the prayer of agreement is important, but this context actually dictates what this prayer of agreement is really about. What what we loose on earth is shall be loosed in heaven, bound on earth shall be bound in heaven. He's talking about our heart being in alignment with the Father to deal with people the way that Jesus would. And so these are the principles that he gives to us. Now, what are the steps? How do we deal with something that happens? So if somebody sins against you, this is the biblical prescription. Now, I want to say that again. I think that we have a lot more chaos in the church because we do not do what the Bible says. Now, (laughs) this is not rocket science, but it's amazing how serious wounds and offense can actually be. It can blind us. And so the first thing Jesus says when someone sins against you, go to the person privately. And this would also mean personally and tell them what they have done. This is the most respectful thing that you can do to another believer because it gives them the chance to explain. If a person has sinned against you, maybe it's a misunderstanding. There could be a clarity to that sin. I I agree with that, but maybe we're wrong. And sometimes I have been wrong where it looked like they sinned against me and I thought they sinned against me, but they actually didn't sin against me and I need to give them the opportunity to explain. Hey, when you did this, This is how I felt, and this is what happened in my heart. This is what happened in my mind, and I need you to explain this because, honestly, I'm just in conflict that this happened because, biblically, this is not the way to treat someone, and so I just need to give you the opportunity to explain because I want to be right with you, but I'm not right with you right now until we hash this out, and so this is actually respectful giving someone the opportunity to explain themselves or it's giving them the opportunity to repent. If we don't give someone the opportunity to repent, then something therefore is wrong with the way that we view this situation. It is very possible that a person doesn't realize the impact of their words. Now, now let's just think about this for a second. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. Is it possible that people don't realize what they're doing? We all have blinders. You have sin in your life. I have sin in my life. And sometimes that sin is not something that I'm just maliciously trying to to do against other people. It just is that unsanctified part of me that God is bringing back into order. He is working on me. By the Holy Spirit, he is helping me. He is sanctifying me. And each one of us, We are in that process of sanctification and we can be blind to sometimes that sin that we commit against each other where it's not malicious. If it's malicious, it speaks for itself, obviously. And so we need to um, acknowledge something else here. Jesus says, if someone sins against you, go to them. If you and I are waiting for someone to come to us, we are on the wrong side of scripture. Now, I need you to hear me say that again, because sometimes in our being offended, and in our wounding, we are actually thinking, well, that person knew what they did, and they need to come to me. That's not what Jesus said. I want to I explain this. Listen, <laughs> if we're biblical Christians, we have to follow the Bible. If we know someone has done us wrong, or the Bible actually does also say in an earlier passage, if we've done something wrong, and it's, we've been made aware that a person has something against us, then we need to go to them. But if we are aware that someone has sinned against us, then we cannot put the responsibility on them. If we're sitting with that, we will eventually stew on that. And so Jesus is doing two things. Number one, he wants us to be like Jesus. Okay, that's number one. Number two, he wants us, if we're aware of it, to be mature and put to death that, the irreconcilable differences. Okay, the mature person should step up. What will happen if we don't is we will go talk to other people about it. When we do that, we start to practice sin. Sin against us will produce sin in us. When that happens and we start gossiping in the name of, I need some good advice on this, brother, sister, so-and-so, come on, let's be honest. If we would just go to people, give them the opportunity to repent, give them the opportunity to explain, we could settle so much stuff, right? This is so vital for us to actually Practice. And listen, this could potentially stop the cycle of sin in someone else's life. What if this person not only does it to you, but another person and another person and another person, and by us going to them, Jesus knows that we actually have the power to stop the cycle. And think about that. We can cut off the cycle of sin by simply going to a person. So if we're stubborn, and we're just sitting there, well, I'm just going to wait for them to come to me. Friend, don't do that, okay? Now, if this person has perpetually done this to you again and again and again, we need to keep going in, in this passage to see how we need to see someone. But I'm not talking about you've already gone to them two, three, five times, and they're not coming to you. This is The scripture keeps giving us wisdom for situations like that. But we're talking about initially speaking. We go to that person for relationship to be restored. The second thing, if that person... Hears you, you can restore that relationship. All is saved. Praise God. Kingdom kids are together. Jesus is Lord. The Bible is honored. Come on, Jesus. The example of Jesus goes out. It's a beautiful thing. If that doesn't happen, then the Bible says, go to the per- person with witnesses, and this is for the purpose of accountability. Sometimes a person doesn't trust what you're saying, and we need to choose godly, spiritual people who understand the Bible. And also that person can trust. Whenever I've negotiated some kind of intervention of of this kind, I've always made sure that whoever is that second or third person can be trusted by both parties. Because if it's just like your spouse, your friend, or whatever, and they're not fully trusted in, uh, in an objective way then you obviously see what's gonna happen. And so we wanna choose the best people for the situation where relationship can be restored. That's the goal. If the goal is for relationship to be restored, then we've gotta know who we're choosing and why. And so this is really important. And we wanna bring this into the light so that we can see restoration and reconciliation. Now it says in the passage that if we are able to win them over by accountability, then all is restored. Jesus is honored. The word of God is honored. Um, The example is very clear. People inside the church will see a great example, and that's a beautiful thing. But if they don't listen to the witnesses, then we need to go to the church. But this is for the purpose of restoration. When a person will not listen to you or some witnesses, we need to get other people involved. When it talks about going to the church, it's not talking about 2,000 people at Northwest Church. Sometimes we misinterpret and we think Pastor Ben needs to stand on a stage and this is where we oust somebody. That is not the form of church discipline that Jesus is talking about. He's saying you go to the church. Most of what they had then was smaller groups of people. In the early church, this was after the resurrection of Christ, they had small house churches primarily. Yeah, they would meet in temple courts for prayer and there would be more believers there that would gather, but primarily they had house churches and Jesus is with 12. And so he's saying, bring it to the church bring it to the group of people that you do life with. You know, In other words, don't avoid it. Don't sweep it under the rug. Bring it to the church so that everybody understands that there is an issue because they already know. So we bring it to, this would be for us maybe a life group. This would be a small group. This would be that setting where this person is a regular. That's important for us to practice, right? So we need to Get everybody to pursue the purpose of restoration. The point of bringing it to the church is that the church gets involved in restoration, not that the church judges the person. It's that we've already rendered the verdict that something is wrong. And we've tried to bring witnesses who agree that sin has been done. And so we're not trying to negotiate whether or not this is sin by asking other people, do you think this is sin? We've already decided. Somebody has sinned against me and I've brought accountability, they all agree, nothing has been done, this person now is avoiding it, we're not gonna avoid it, we're gonna get the church involved, the church is gonna pursue this person's heart for the purpose of restoration. If they reject the church, then the fourth step and the fourth stage is treat them as a non-believer, he says tax collector or pagan, but this is for the purpose of redemption. So there's a couple things that this means, right? So number one, A pagan or a tax collector is a non-believer. So we unleash the church to pursue this person as a non-believer. So we want to see them restored to Jesus. This may mean that they're not saved. This may mean that they're not a Christian. If they do not want to exhibit Christian character, they don't want to enter into restoration, they don't want to enter into repentance, then clearly we need to see them as somebody who needs to be restored to God and not just to me. So then it moves This situation shifts from what you have with me to now what you have with God because we see you as a tax collector and you need to be right with God, not just right with me. So that's what we pursue. The church is unleashed on seeking their restoration to God, number one. Number two is we need to remove their influence from the church, all right? That's just obvious because you can't have a non-believer having that kind of influence, that counsel, that advice, that ministry, that leadership among the church because they're exhibiting non-Christian qualities. And by non-Christian, I don't mean perfection or not or lack of perfection. I mean, they're not willing to repent. They're not willing to enter into restoration. So we're not perfect, but when these things occur, if we're not willing to reconcile, then something is profoundly off. And that's where we need to see that person is, you need to be made right with God, because if you're not made right with God, you can't be made right with me. And can I just park there for a second and, and, and just talk about this for a minute? Listen, we've got to realize that When we talk about how we deal with sin against us by somebody that's not a believer, we've got to realize that the whole purpose for us to, how we deal with that, is to pursue their heart so that they would come to know Christ. We're living in a culture that's not going to preach that. We are not going to preach today that when you're, you know, shamed or harmed or sinned against, you need to pursue their heart. You need to pray for them. Um, those who despitefully use you, pray for your enemies, pursue their reconciliation with the Father. The world doesn't pursue that. In every pursuit that the world has right now, they are not necessarily or even trying to pursue reconciliation with one another because if you don't have it with God, you cannot have it with others. You cannot have it with others. How do we know that? Because how would your heart be if you didn't have the Holy Spirit in your heart? How angry would you be? How offended would you be? How wounded would you be? How would you see people? What hatred would be in your heart? The only reason that we have that voice silence is because we all have a higher standard. No matter what has been done to us, we know that what Jesus has done for us is more powerful than what anybody has done against us. If we don't have something more powerful that has done something inside of our lives, then we're just subject to the sins in this world like everyone else. It's kind of like a really bad illustration, okay? If you want to chop down a tree, a tree, think about a tree that's just massive, okay? It's thick, it's 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 strong, it's been there for 100 years. If you want to chop down a tree, you know, you're not going to take some kind of big ax without an ax head and just hit the tree. What would happen if you took an ax without an ax head and just hit a big old tree? Nothing, <laughs> you know, what you're using to bring something down has to be more powerful than what is coming down, right? If you're going to take this thing out, if you're going to chop this thing down, then what you're hitting it with has to be more powerful than what you're hitting. And that's the reason that Christians who have the Holy Spirit and the Word of God can deal with sins differently than the world or than non-Christians because we have the Holy Spirit. We have the Word of God. We have the ability. We have the power that can bring what looks like more powerful down. It's actually not. That's why a chainsaw, something small, can bring down something so big. The Holy Spirit is in our hearts. Now, He's not small. The Word of God's not small, but it's more powerful. One word from God is more powerful than anything else in this world, period, period. One word from God is more powerful than than any sin against us in this world, right? You can take my body, you can take my life, but you cannot take my spirit. I've given my life to Jesus. Therefore, if I die, I go to be with the Lord. And that's benefit for me. That's what Paul would say. Paul being persecuted for his faith, Paul being shipwrecked, abandoned, beaten, left for dead many times, he could say like, listen, it's better for me to go on and be with the Lord. But it's better for you that I stay here because the reason and the purpose that I'm here is for your sake, that I would see you reconciled to God and reconciled to one another, that the gospel would continue to go into the world. Now, why am I saying all that? Because if we're really going to deal with offense among brothers and sisters in Christ, we've got to realize that we are under a higher standard and all of us must hear to that standard. We are under a higher word than, than the word that's in our own minds and hearts when we're offended. I can't believe you did that. I can't believe you did that. Why would you do that? You knew better than that. No, we're under a word that is for all of us, something that's a higher standard than any feeling we have or whatever somebody might do. This is where God's word is more powerful than anybody else's words, period. And so when a person will not reconcile, we pursue them as a non-believer. We shift from reconciliation between us and them to reconciliation between them and God because until they have that, they will not be able to have reconciliation with us, right? You cannot have reconciliation without repentance. And so it is not on our part to make that person's heart right. We can't control people. We give people the opportunity to be right with us, but when they will not have it, then we pursue, we pray, we unleash the church on them being right with God. We do have to remove their influence from the church because we cannot allow a non-believer to advise or counsel the church. You know, they're not going to, they're not going to adhere to this word. It's really important for us to remember that. So these are the initial steps that we use and employ, biblically speaking, to deal with sin that's been done against us. As I close, let me just remind you, biblical prescription of dealing with sin has to actually be enacted when there's a biblical sin. What I mean by that is the Bible stipulates, the Bible dictates what sin is. You and I cannot ascribe motive to people. We cannot ascribe uh, like malice to someone. We cannot, even even when we think somebody's done us wrong, we need to go to them and allow them to explain. Because I think one of the major flaws that I see in how people deal with sin among each other is they automatically assume something was a sin when it's not clearly a biblical sin. I mean, if you punch somebody, you've sinned against them. If you call them a name, you've sinned against them. If you said something, something behind their back, you've sinned against them. If you've done something to them physically that's harmful, You've sinned against them. You know the reality is: is maybe a person, maybe you've sinned against a person, and you didn't know that it was sin against them. That's why we have to be gracious to each other. It still can be sin, of course, but that person, you know, if we, if a person sins against me, and I find something offensive that they didn't see it that way, and that that wasn't their motive, that wasn't what they were trying to do, then I've got to be really, I've got to be gracious, right? And so we've got to make sure that the way that we're holding the prescription of Scripture is against biblical sins, okay? And so that's why it can be very harmful and it can be very hurtful to ascribe motive to people where there wasn't some clear sin that was done. And so we've gotta be gracious as the church because our purpose, our highest goal and purpose is to share the gospel of Jesus, is to make disciples of Jesus as we move his mission forward in the world together. And when we're reconciled with each other, we are gonna do that at that exponential rate if we're not reconciled with each other, it has the power to distort us, to detract us, derail us from what we are here to do. And so offenses, I believe, and I've said this before, can be one of the most powerful tools that the enemy has to use against us, to stop us from doing what Jesus called us to do. Let's go ahead and close our time with a little bit of prayer as we join our hearts together for the purpose of dealing with offense. We don't want anything to have precedence over our lives except for the word and the ways of Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you today for your word, and we just pray, God, that Matthew 18 would go deep into our hearts. I know I've spoken about this before, but I think we just need to hear it again and again, because the reality is you gave us a prescription for the issues that we face, and Lord, it's it's a cure. It's how we handle sin among one another in the church, and God, we need to deal with our sin in a way that we seek restoration and relationship We love one another. We cover one another. We follow your word. We follow your truth. Your truth is what is our guide, and it's what protects us from us having that spiritual cancer that that just wants to be riddled throughout the body. Father, I pray over Northwest Church right now, and I pray for anybody tuning in that's from another church. God, I pray that you would just root out things inside of us as your people that are causing conflict and chaos and confusion, and that, Lord, you would fill us with the Holy Spirit. Give us a heart to follow your word, to dig deep into your word, and to find what's there and to employ it in our relationships among our churches. And I thank you for Northwest Church. I pray for your blessing over this church. I pray that you would settle all accounts. I pray that forgiveness would be full. I pray that you would rest, restore and reconcile relationships that are hindered right now. Any relationships that are hindered, I pray, Holy Spirit, bring conviction and bring convincing about our role in that restoration. God, we thank you that you, these this is your family. We thank you that you give us the answers. We thank you that your heart is that all of us would be together as sons and daughters of God. Lord, may we I pray that what we are is, is a beautiful picture of unity and reconciliation in the world, that they would want what we have. Make us that, Lord. We invite it and we receive it today. In Jesus' mighty name, everybody said amen.